Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Zivi Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And speaking of books, I have two of my own books coming out this spring and summer. Princess Charming is a picture book, which debuts on April 19th, and Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Lee Kravitz is the author of The Last Confessions of Sylvia Pete. Lee teaches fiction and nonfiction at the San Francisco Writers Grotto, has lectured at Stanford University's Wallace Stenger Fellowship Program and UC Berkeley's Creative Writing Program, and is co-founder of the Lit Camp Writers Conference with collaborators Jonathan Lethem, Adam Johnson, Andrew Sean Greer, Paul Harding, and Janice Cook-Newman. The author of two nonfiction books, Strange Contagion and Supervisors with David B. Feldman, Lee has also written for print and TV outlets, including the New York Times, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, and Sesame Street. Lee has a master's degree in counseling psychology, has held positions at the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System, the National Center for PTSD, and Stanford University Hospital. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his wife and children. Welcome, Lee. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. We're going to discuss The Last Confessions of Sylvia P., your latest novel. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, Well, we were just chatting before we started filming about my color-coded bookcases, but I wanted to hear more about your experience working at Penguin and what that was like going in the book room. That is so cool. 
the 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 mystical magical book room. I, I'm yeah. probably talking out of school here, but one of the best parts of I mean, there's a lot of great things about working in publishing. This is before I got into the writing side. I was working on the, uh, the behind the scenes side. And so, you know, you get to work with amazing authors, you get to work with amazing people putting books together. And, but it's probably not, I mean, it's probably very well known that you don't get paid a heck of a lot of money when you're in book publishing, certainly not at the beginning. But the best part about it is you would go into the book room. And the book room had shelves and shelves of books that were about to come out or books that were had just come out. And one of the benefits was you could go through and you could pick out all the books that you wanted. And it was sort of like a kid in a candy store. It was incredible. But every time I move now, and this has been, gosh, 15 years, there's I mean, there's thousands of dollars worth of uh, in book weight. You yeah. know, that you have to move from from place to place, but it, it, it's wonderful. I, I, I love those those times. So you've actually paid for the books like a hundred times over. By oh. <laughs> that's exactly right. The, the joke was on me, right? Yeah, that's how the, it's a co- collaboration between the moving industry and the publishers. Uh, oh, yeah. I think it's a great, I mean, if you, you, you sell books as much any way that you can. Exactly. And if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. But yeah, I was just commenting because your, your shelves behind you are like the stuff of, I mean, like just fiction. I don't know anybody who has shelves like that in real life. They're beautiful. Thank you. Well, yeah. I have to say they used to be very disorganized. And by the way, since I started this podcast four years ago, now I have like eight zillion books that I didn't used to have. I used to have a lot of books, but not like this. And this isn't the only room that has books. But anyway, during COVID, I came in here and I took all of them off. I like had to touch every book and I put them down here. And then I spent a day like reorganizing that. And I haven't touched it. That was over a year ago. So I can't believe it just took you a day. But I mean, one of the benefits of doing what, 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 what you do, though, is that you do get all those books that come your way. It's, it's oh, sort it's of amazing. A, it is. It's amazing. I mean, I get to open packages every day. Talk about kid in a candy store. I mean, this is like a dream, a dream gig. Are, I know. People are just sending you books and all they're time. like yeah. all the time. It's incredible. And then I don't even know what to do with them. I actually, outside my office, I have a library cart full of the books that I'm not covering that I don't know what, and like every so often we donate them to um, Housing Works downtown, but yeah, there okay. must be a better system. I should just send, I don't know. Anyway, wait, I will talk about your book, but back up <laughs> for a great. second now that we're already chatting about all this stuff. Yeah. Where, how did you end up in book publishing as a, as a start anyway? And did you always love books? And like, where did you grow up and like, where'd you All go? All that fun stuff. Yeah, just give me a quick sketch. A quick sketch. I've always, I mean, like, it's not a joke. I've I've always, always loved books. And my dad got me into it when I was very, very little. I'd watch him read. We'd go to the library and he'd pick out these novels and he'd lay on his sofa and read. And I'd just watch him read and I'd ask him what he was reading. And it was just something I always knew that I wanted to do because I could connect with my dad in that way. My dad's a doctor, not literary. He's very, very, very well read, but that's just how we really connected. Cut to years later, I'm offered a job, true story. I'm offered a job to be a producer at America's Next Top Model. And and I was like, okay, so I'm in New York. I, I was offered the job. And at the same day, I'm offered a job to work at Penguin to be, a, I think it was in the publicity department, like bottom rung of the publicity department. And I took it and I couldn't wait. It was, it was, it was the job that I wanted to do. You have now endeared yourself to every non-modelish woman, which is like (laughs) 99.9% of us out there. So thank you for that. (laughs) It was just, it was just, it made so much sense. I wanted to be a writer my whole life. I wanted to be around writers before that I worked at PBS. So I worked in children's programming and I wrote on TV shows. So my heart was always there. And I was like, well, I could go into, into producing, you know, 
but gosh, I really want to do book publishing so bad. And I spent the next five years working in different publishing houses and working with some of the most amazing authors you've, I mean, you, you you can't even imagine the people that would walk through the office. It was incredible. Give me like a couple sneak peeks. Like we're in no, some sneak movies. peeks. George Saunders walked into my office one day looking for the men's room. And <laughs> I was like, he'd walked in and said, Hey, um, I'm looking, well, he's looking for Riverhead. And then he was like, is there a men's room around her also? And I was like, yeah, sure. It's over to the left. And he goes, he says, thanks and walks off. And I'm like, that was, that was George Saunders. Oh my God. <laughs> and, but it was even more than that. I remember uh, taking the, uh, you know, taking the train uptown where I used to live in the Upper West Side. And, you know, I ran into Philip Roth one night who was just walking down Broadway and I sort of secretly trailed him, you know, from 86th to 82nd Street. And I was like, he had a new book coming out. And I was like, I wonder if he's going to do a reading at the Barnes & Noble that's right over there. Yeah. So I sort of secretly trailed him down to the street as one does, you know. Yeah. And, and, and of course, it, he's just wandering around the Upper West Side. That's what he's doing. So you're like, yeah. you know, and uh, he wound up stopping at a newsstand and pulled up a, a Newsweek that had covered his new book. And he was reading the review. And I was like, that is such a Philip Roth moment, right? Oh, my gosh. It, it was great. And I walked off. And but, you know, if you're looking for it, you know, you'll find literary greatness. Well, everywhere, but in New York, especially. And that's the thing, though, about authors that I've been trying to like figure out if this is a problem authors want solved or not, but or I just want solved myself because yeah. <laughs> um, you can be in a room like I've gone to these New York Public Library amazing galas and all this stuff, and I'm like, I know that there are people next to me, and I've probably spent hours inside their heads reading their books, but I don't recognize them right now because I just don't. I don't know what they all look like. I could I could tell you there's the spine of their books, but who you they know, are, you know, it's crazy. I have to say there's something really cool about that. I mean, you know, I've worked in in entertainment. Before I, I started doing this, I worked in, you know, the writing side of entertainment for like TV and film. And, you know, if you're if you're somebody who really appreciates that sort of world, you know, getting close to to anybody who's doing that is very tough. Mm-hmm. But the, one of the most wonderful things about authors, and this has been, I, I've known this since, you know, from the beginning is that you can reach out to them and 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 talk to them and and still connect with them on a human level in a way that you know, there are celebrity authors, but you can still reach out to them. I I, um, I have this little thing that I've always done. I reach out every time I read a book that I really love, reach out. And, and, and there's an author that I just fall in love with, like uh, Jonathan Latham or Michael Shaben or, you know, any of these sort of guys. I mean, it, 20 years ago, I, I started doing this. They used to have their emails on their on their websites. And a lot of them don't anymore. But at the time they did, and you could reach out to them and you could say, oh, I loved your work. I loved your novel. I really, you know, I, I, I just fell in love with everything that you said. I love these characters. And they would write you back. And to this day, I still get those sort of emails back and forth. I have that little thrill that comes my way. Like, I, you know, you, know, you just reach out to people and they write you back. And that's one of the great things about authors in general is that they still really want to connect with their readers. And it's such a, a loving relationship between author and reader. It's true. We're like cut from the same cloth. I started doing that when I was like 10 years old. I would write, like my mom helped me call a publishing house in Michigan to like look up someone's address and I would handwrite the letters. I ended up in this pen pal relationship with an author whose name was Zibby O'Neill. She was a middle grade author. And I was like, oh my God, the only other Zibby in the world who's an author. This is amazing. And we would like write back and forth. And after a couple of years, she was coming to New York and she came to my apartment and picked me up and took me for tea at the plaza. And I wore like my fanciest outfit with like shoulder pads because it was the 80s. 
I just got chills. That's awesome. What a great story. Yeah, it was really amazing. And yeah, we kept in touch for a long time and it made all the difference, right? It's just so great. And even now, I mean, this, like what I do, it's like the coolest thing ever. It's, it's, and I'm sure with you and Ed Penguin, I remember reading Jill Santopolo's novel a couple of years ago, The Light We Lost. And I was literally in bed sobbing. Like, and I don't cry that often in books, but I remember just sobbing. And I was like, I don't know her. I know I'm interviewing her to come, but like, I'm sobbing. I have to tell her. And I like DM'd her and she wrote me back. And I was like <laughs> sitting there in my bed with the tears still on my face being like, this is amazing. <laughs> it's wonderful. I did that with uh, Joanna, Ra- Joanna Ratkoff. Who wrote yes, actually, I was just on a Zoom with her right before. Oh, the- you were? Oh, yeah, this is she's on, um, she's on she- my advisory board for Zibby Books. So I have oh. a publishing company now. So I know I heard I, you're doing amazing stuff. And I, no, 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 but no. Anyway, no. she was just on the Zoom, which is why I brought it up. But um, uh, it's really funny because I reached I, same sort of thing. I read my my Salinger year. I had, uh, heard about in galley form, and mm-hmm. so that's why I got it in galley form. And I wrote her. I just actually I DM'd her also, and she wrote me back. And now we are like not only we're doing events together, but we're like actually we're hanging out in Boston and and stuff like that. It's it's just. It, it's that sort of relationship you have with people who are just, it's something you can't really even describe, you know, and it's, it's, it's such a wonderful thing. That's true. I, the books I read where I'm like, oh my gosh, I would totally be friends with her. And back in the before podcast days, I would yes. just read that and like close the book and maybe write a note or a letter or something. And that would be the end. And now these have become some of my best friends. Isn't it you know, amazing? It's crazy. Well, now, now you're writing. You've got, you have two books now, right? Am I wrong? Look at you doing your research. That's very nice of you. It's Thank very, you. very nice. <laughs> You're doing some really amazing stuff. And Thank it's, you. Um, it's, a, it's a small literary community with that goes deep. So <laughs> that, of course I know what you do. So. Thank you. Okay. Well, should we like mention your book here? I mean, so, like, I guess so. Uh, we can we talk can about it. it up? I mean, <laughs> okay. Tell, yeah. first of all, how did you come up with this idea? For, tell listeners about, now that, now I'm going to remember that we have people listening to our conversation. Oh, you're right, right. The basic premise of the book and how yeah. you decided to come at it from all these different angles. Yeah. So the last confessions of Sylvia P is the story of how Sylvia Plath came to write her famous novel, The Bell Jar, and the way uh, that several people influenced her and the way that she and her novel influenced them as well. And so the story sort of cascades throughout history. Uh, It goes through, it's about 35 years uh, that sort of encapsulates. But I knew that Sylvia, when I wrote the book, I knew that Sylvia was going to be sort of the, the center of the novel, but it wasn't going to be specifically about Sylvia. It was really going to be about the people who influenced her, but more importantly, the people that she influenced as well. And how it just sort of all the different ways that that she influenced them. I mean, in the way that art and literature is supposed to, right? So that was really the the the, the impetus behind it. And I came to this story originally. So here I am, I, you know, I'm glad we started talking about Penguin because, you know, I'm working at Penguin. I'm, I'm about to turn 30 and I'm getting like basically a, a, a crash course in how to write because I'm surrounded by these amazing authors. And of course, I'm not publishing anything at this point and I'm trying. And so I had a heart to heart with my dad and he's like, Lee, I know you really want this, but it's just not panning out. It's time to grow up. And I was like, dad, you're right. So I decided to go to grad school. And I go to get a master's in counseling psychology. I'm going to be a a psychologist. So there I am. I'm doing my thing. And during one of my rotations in my postgraduate work, I'm actually working in a mental asylum, a mental hospital. And it happens to be just coincidentally the same mental hospital that Ken Kesey worked at when he was writing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 
So there's something in the air. There's something going on. I'm walking in one day and there's a kiosk with a bunch of books, like paperback books for all the patients who are there to read because it's kind of a boring place to be when you're hospitalized, you know? And there's the bell jar. It's just there in the kiosk. And I'd read it before when I was really, you know, much younger. And, you know, I loved it. But when I was rereading it this time, something clicked. There was something about it as I was rereading it. And I realized it's not just the story. I mean, the, the bell jar is sort of a, a, a thinly veiled memoir, even though it's a novel about Sylvia Plath's time in McLean Hospital. And as I'm reading it, I'm realizing it's also there's a parallel story underneath it. And it's really also the story of the birth of confessional poetry. And that just clicked. That just was like, there's something there. And this idea of confessional poetry starting not in a university town, not during a time of upheaval or political upheaval, but it's literally, it was a, it was a, a poetry movement born in a mental hospital. I mean, you got Robert Lowell, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, all of them were diagnosed with bipolar or manic depression back then. They were all hospitalized and they all, during this very brief period of time in the the mid fifties and and late fifties, all congregated in Boston, Massachusetts and were writing confessional poetry. I was like, that is incredible. So that was the story I wanted to tell. I really wanted to get into how this movement started in a hospital. It's crazy. Yeah. Especially when you tell it from the point of view in the hospital and even some of the treatments that were done at the time, which we wouldn't really think about now and the analysis of the patient. And you had this one scene with the shock treatments. So they're describing the the treatment. I'll just start here. Behind the bed is a number dial with a voltage symbol that lights. It is at this moment each session that Miss Plath appears most tormented, not with terror, but with shame. Her eyes close, and at the press of a red button, her back arches and her shoulders strain. The violence rages through her and mollifies into small, melodic spasms. Though she is out, her body continues to fight, to kick, to drum against the mattress. When the internal wave crests, her muscles ease. She remains still like this for another 30 minutes. As promised, I sit by her side and wait for her to wake. The clicking of the clock secondhand mirrors her delicate pulse. Do I believe the treatment is effective and affords Miss Plath a semblance of inner stillness? I do, and yet it remains a shallow inner peace. Despite fleeting flashes of euphoria that follow each session, her depression deepens. She remains contemptuous, self-critical, and withdrawn. Like, what a scene. You know, you can just see it. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, you know, it's, it's you know, she talks about, uh, if you read The Bell Jar, she talks a lot about the the horror of getting electroconvulsive shock therapy. And the thing about you know ECT is that it works. It does work. It does work, but it's awful. It's awful. So there's a character named Dr. Barnhouse, who is actually a real person. And Dr. Ruth Barnhouse is, is Sylvia's psychiatrist, her doctor. And she realizes, both in real life, but also in the novel, that these things aren't working. Like they're, they offer a very short window of peace. Uh, of inner peace. And so she sort of takes it upon herself to, to find new methods. And a lot of them are unconventional, but these methods are actually the very thing that sort of draw Sylvia back into herself and teach her how to read and to write and actually to actually become the poet that we all know and love today. It's amazing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, thank goodness for people who care about patient care in a real way. I actually also worked in a mental hospital. I wanted to be a psychologist. So I worked in an adolescent inpatient unit. And yeah, which was not, I mean, that that was tough. And I was only like 20, so they didn't care what I had to say. But no, but the the hospital landscape, I mean, it's all tough. And it's like people are there because they're on their last, like this is their last hope. And yet it's like, I'd want to like fall into a bed of M&Ms or something. Do you know what I mean? If I, this is like not the warm and fuzzy place you need when you're feeling your most vulnerable and weak emotionally, I think, but whatever. No, I think you're absolutely right. And that was one of the things that sort of intrigued me. I mean, there's this whole thing about psychology. When you think about psychology, it's, you think about the negative side of psychology, but there's actually a lot of positives too. You know, there's Freud talks about sublimation, right? It's a, it's a defense mechanism. The idea behind sublimation is you actually take all of the pain and angst and depression that you have instead of you know, denying it or, or burying it, you pour it into something wonderful. You pour it into art is specifically mm-hmm. what he talks about. And there's, that's one of the things that I think really sort of intrigued me about the idea of Dr. Barnhouse teaching Sylvia to pour her, all of her pain and anguish into her writing. Yep. And, you know, she literally, you know, grabs a pencil and shows her how to write because when Sylvia shows up or in real life shows up at McLean Hospital, she can't read or write anymore. She's that, she's in that sort of state. And I think through art, I think through writing, through literature, we can actually sort of grow and thrive and become our our better selves. Sometimes even by showing the worst version of ourselves, which is what confessional poetry was all about, right? It was this idea that you 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 talk about the grief and the ugly thoughts and the pain and anguish and you pour it into the page and then all of a sudden you have a you know a poem like lady lazarus or which is you know it talks about her suicide attempts but it changes the way that we view the world as well as and we also find it our own inner sense of empathy it's it's incredible no and i love your classroom scene where the poems are first coming up and getting met with all of this like, whoa, what is that? Like this is amazing and the workshopping. I mean, when yeah. you think when you think about it now, I mean, that is what 
songwriting essentially is, is confessional poetry, like put to music. I mean, that's really what a lot of the people today who are super famous, that's what everyone's doing. We're all just trying to find our way into it. I think that's, you know, you bring up a really great point. Think about the music in the 1950s. It's got, you know, the sort of the Buddy Holly mm-hmm. sort of stuff and you got some of the blues stuff. But then compare that to some of the confessional sort of lyrics that we're getting today. You know, my young daughter, she's uh, almost 10 and she's listening to music that is all about heartache and grief. Yeah. And, you know, the reason that that happened is because Sylvia Plath and her cohort started writing like this. And it was so different than everything else that was coming out at that time that there was a huge amount of rejection from the the general public. And even within the poetry world, like in in the literature world, you can't write like this. You can't talk about this sort of stuff. And yet they did. and And it really did change everything. And even how Prozac Nation and Girl Interrupted, those were some of the leaders of even the confessional memoir. Like even that wasn't done that much before. That's exactly right. We're talking like, I mean... Yeah, I mean, those came out, I think, in the late 90s. And those changed everything, too. I mean, Prozac Nation was, is, is incredible. Girl Interrupted. I mean, I, I think about that opening scene all the time, you know. And it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful memoir. Yeah. Well, all thanks to Sylvia Plath. Oh, Sylvia. Uh, did you read Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz? I did. It's in my, it's in my collection in over here. Stuff. Yes, I it that. is. I, I'm blank. Gail Crowther, maybe? I had her on my uh, podcast. It doesn't sound wrong, but she's. Yeah. It, it sounds right. Maybe. You know what? Here's the thing. When I go to the Ritz, I'm definitely having the martinis. That's yes. that's what I'm doing. Yes. I had invited her. I said in my podcast, is like whenever that came out, I was like, can I please come to the Ritz and have martinis? So now we have to open up the, if I ever get back to Boston, <laughs> please come. We'll have like a Ritz. But you're not in Boston. Where are you? You're on the West I'm Coast. in San Francisco. Okay. Well, next time we're all in Boston. I'm, man, we should just meet up in Boston and do this. You know, we should do like the, the, the round table thing all over again. Like the Algonquin, we should go to New York. We'll just do the Algonquin round Great. table. Great. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Are you in LA or are you in New York? Where are you? I'm in New York, but I go to LA a lot. Okay. My husband basically works out there. So we go, I go back and forth a lot. But. You're bi-coastal. I'm bi-coastal. I'm divorced and remarried. So I have these weekends without the kids. So. Oh my God. It's yeah. sort of the, <laughs> I don't want to say something uncouth, but it sounds like you're doing really well. It sounds like a, you know, what a, what a life. Books around you, living by coastal, have weekends off. I mean, <laughs> I <laughs> promise I work really hard. I, I know you do. I'm not kidding. I I, I I know you are. It's it's incredible stuff. But yeah, it's it's good. And I like, by the way, in your book that you have the whole thing with a little mystery to it because that always like really propels a plot when you're trying to figure something out of like, how did these papers get into this house that where they were discovered and, and how does the reader go along with it and figure it out? And I don't know. I found that also very captivating as I, I I super is the wrong word as I went along. No plot. I think it's the long plot. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's. Listen, so this is the funny thing. Some, someone asked me one time, like, how, you know, why are you writing from the perspective of three women? And, you know, so, which is a very, it's, it's a little bit of a touchy subject. I've thought about this a lot. And so part of it came down to how were these people affected by, by Sylvia and who were they? And so, you know, I had Dr. Barnhouse, which made a lot of sense to me because she's a therapist and or a psychiatrist who really, truly did help Sylvia in her early days. And then you have this rival, right, who many years later, and her literary rival who had to be so similar to Sylvia that and with just a little bit of a difference that the rivalry would be real. So those two were going to be women. But the third, which takes place in modern times, which is the mystery you were talking about, I couldn't crack that one. 
Mm. I couldn't crack who that character was. And I went through iteration after iteration. And it was at one point it was these illiterate, you know, it was one of the illiterate brothers who discovers the the manuscript in an attic. And, and then it was somebody who was going to steal the manuscript. And then it was, and it just changed and kept on changing, kept on changing. And at some point I realized that the, whoever this character was had to be sort of me in the novel because I was coming into this as almost as a novice to Sylvia. And These guys were not like you. No, <laughs> these guys, those guys were sort of like, you know, very, yeah. very different. Yes. Okay. But you, but you do have this sort of curator who knows enough and starts digging, digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And the more she starts digging into the history of these, this manuscript that shows up in front of her, which may or may not be the real deal, all of a sudden a mystery sort of opened up in front of me. And I was like, that has to be the narrative drive throughout the entire mm-hmm. book. Are these real? And if so, how do they wind up where they wound up? And what does it have to do with, you know, the curator, the modern day curator? And also this mystery has to lock in all three Mm storylines, which are not, which, and I'm, and so I just set myself up for a huge amount of work and trouble to figure out. And then all of a sudden it clicked and I was like, yeah, this mystery, the mystery has to drive the whole thing. Yeah. Well, it was very cool. I liked exactly how it worked and it was very cool. And I learned a lot and Yeah. Just the the echo effects of all that whole time period are are so alive and well. And basically, thank you to Encanto the movie, so that my almost nine year old daughter has stopped singing things like this, like Taylor Swift <laughs> and all the TikTok songs and whatever that's derived directly from Sylvia Plath and this book, and is finally that's back so to like kid appropriate. Encanto, yeah, <laughs> it's very funny. My kids, my daughter was almost too much. Um, she was like Encanto. Everyone's watching it. I'm mm-hmm. not into it. Yep. Now she's watched it 15 times. She's like, I'm still not into it, but I still got to watch it again. So she's yeah. loving this too. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a I'm thing. Like, she's learning Spanish. This is great. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. okay. Advice. Wait, what are you working on next? And what advice do you have for aspiring authors? Oh boy. That's a, that's a mouthful. Um, I am working on a new novel and I'm not going to go too much into it because I keep these things pretty close to the, the, the chest or the vest or whatever the, the phrase is these whatever. days. But, but the it is... The rugby, uh, Henley, whatever. That's exactly yeah. it. Keeping so it close to the Henley. <laughs> the Henley. We should, that's, that's what we should That's a good title. That. Yeah. That's a yeah. great, keeping it close to the Henley. Yeah. So you can, you can on, write that one. You can, I'll give it to you. Are you sure? Okay, but I'm giving you credit. You definitely. I'll just take. I'll take a line, like not even a line, just in the acknowledgement somewhere. It's fine. I think that's fair enough. That works. I think it's a good compromise. So it's it's in the vein of sort of historical fiction, but it's and it takes place in New York, and it's it's something that is. If you could see my desk right now, it's just an explosion of of maps, uh, narrative maps, and and things like that. And as far as as far as advice for up and coming writers, you know what I would actually say? I would say treat it like a business. Treat it like a business. Treat it like work because it is. There's the passion. There's the art. But every day, I wake up every day and I, I take my kids to school. I come back home. I put my shoes on and I sit down and I work every day. And I work from uh, 8.30 until 6 at night. You go barefoot to drop off? I go barefoot to drop off. But at work, you're always wearing shoes. Okay. So, so that's really it. So if you if you, you work until you write from 8.30 to 6. Writing. Every day, every oh, day. my gosh. Every day. I thought everybody did it that way, but apparently they don't because I get that sort of response from, from my friends too. Like I'm nuts, but it's, you You're know. Not nuts to work that long at your desk. It's just like being in a manuscript and tapping into that creativity for that long is a little, is it's, impressive. It's, That's, you know, it's a lot. 
It's it's a lot, and I, I'm sure I've missed out on some major things. Like apparently, there's been a pandemic <laughs> that I just raised, lifted my head up. I was like, "Where is everybody?" But but that's really it. I would give that advice, which is is to treat it like work and learn the craft, because I think that was the the difference. You know, my dad, you know, was right. He was like, "Lee, it's you know, you got to start, you know, growing up and 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 being serious about something." And it and and at that point, I started realizing, like, you know what? It's not just that you you can love what you do, which is super super important, but if you sort of really think of it like you know, learning the craft and sitting down and doing it every single day, you're, you're going to get somewhere, you're going to start moving forward. So that's, that's pretty much how I, I probably say that to my seven-year-old self anyway. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, well, Leah, this was so much fun and thank you for joining me today. And I hope that we can meet up with Gail and have our martinis at the, in Boston sometime. That sounds amazing. Thanks for having me on. This has been super fun. Oh, good. Okay. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 